Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. Thank you for joining us for another episode of In the Landscape. Welcome. We're back. Hi, we're back. (laughs) (laughs) It's always funny to try to come up with creative ways to open a show, but Actually, one of the nice things about podcasts is a little bit of continuity. So, mm-hmm. you know, if it's a similar opening every time, of course, we have the the opening music and the, you know, me, me introing the show. And then we just sort of pop on here with the recordings. But uh, hey, here we are. So I'm your host, Kate Sadler. And with me is my co-host. Charles Sadler. Charles Sadler. Yes, indeed. Our resident design expert. Thank you for joining us for recent episodes. They've been a lot of fun to record. And uh, today's episode is going to be all about design, but Mm -hmm. with a slight twist. So we'll get into that in just a moment here. And and you can probably already tell from the title in the show notes. We're going to deal with remote design, design online, and the benefits and, you know, limitations of that as an option. And why might we be focusing on remote design? (laughs) Well, the entire world (laughs) is facing a rather unique circumstance. We're not alone here in the United States with uh, more and more cases of of this um, COVID-19 going around. And of Mm -hmm. course, you know, we love evergreen content, but it just happens to be what's happening right now. And we, like many others, are preparing to socially distance ourselves, stay in. And, you know, I think it's fair to acknowledge the degree of stress that that can cause for families and for folks who have a business and and most importantly for anyone who's actually facing an infection of themselves or a loved one you know our hearts mm-hmm. go out to you and we hope we can all do our part to help mitigate the impact of this we'll just start with a lighter note charles you were traveling recently and got to visit with a real artist in a local right. area of texas so can you tell us a little bit about your special landscape-focused visit. Oh, right. About 150 years ago, this is what the research shows, in France, a type of outdoor furniture was created called faux bois. It means uh, false wood is what faux bois means. So you can imagine there is furniture that is made of wood in a naturalistic manner. So like when we talked about at the Hell at Nature Sanctuary, where there's the Adirondack style or Mohonk Mountain House, there's like many examples of using wood in its more or less unaltered state. And if you haven't been to our social media pages, there are some great examples of or photos of that Hallett Nature oh, right. Center and the real bois, the real wood <laughs> um, that is there. So yes, mm-hmm. really, really great examples of that that type of furniture construction. So I guess through craftsmanship and many French parks actually too, there are the use of concrete can be used, it's easier to work with than stone, but it lasts for a very long time, much longer than wood. So you'd say, well, why would you make something to look like wood? Why not just use wood? Well, because the faux bois can last longer than a human life or, can, you know, a long, long time. And so this artist, artist and artist Carlos Cortez, his studio is more or less like in the heart of San Antonio. And so I've been very excited. I'd followed him, corresponded a little. He comes from a multi, multi-generations of artisans making faux bois. So his great uncle was a very renowned faux bois artist. 
And then his father went on to do it, and now he does it. So faux bois is using reinforced steel. So you make a, a structure if it's going to be, so it could be as simple as a bird bath or a bird feeder. There's furniture is maybe the most popular faux bois, benches, tables, which can stay outside. In a cold climate, it's going to age faster, but in a hot climate where there's not as much freezing. And then he also takes on commissions where he'll build, he'll build large public commissions where it could be a gazebo or a pergola. And the level of realism, it can be from quite, quite stylized to so convincing that you would bet your life that it's really would. And so it was exciting to meet him, learn about the process, see the, the forms where it just starts out as, as reinforced steel, as rebar, and then he gradually builds more or less like a, like a wire mesh form. And then different types, different recipes of concrete are used to build that up. Wow, very exciting. It's really nice to honor the artists that are in the landscape doing great work. And so it's great that you had a chance to meet him and uh, maybe someday either use a piece in one of your designs mm -hmm. or aspirationally buy a piece ourselves. These right. Are, these are obviously you're paying quite a bit for materials and labor and then artistry on top of it. So they're not exactly inexpensive to add to your collection. But if this is something you've been looking for because you're battling the the warmer, wetter climate, certainly check out his work. Right. So the as I travel, I mean we're always studying, seeing what you know what's what's out there. And then through travel I guess my goal is to be building relationships for future collaboration, future projects. And so there's no substitute. I was in New Jersey recently. I was scouting a nursery and then I went to San Antonio, met with this artisan. So I think of that as if our work is being a conductor and in, in, in lots of collaboration with plants, materials, benches, it's all these others can be part of our, our more or less artistic palette. And it's really meeting them, really learning. How do they create it? What's their process? So that we can be very appropriate if we suggest that to a client. We really understand his process. It's, it's not a quick process either. Mm. It's not going to be, it's not like, like it's going to show up at your door in seven days. Well, it's so important to help establish expectations for clients as they're trying to build a, a design and, and get it in shape for whatever their, their goals and, and budget are. So that's a good point. Now, we do have some photos of this as well on our social media. Stay tuned. Toward the end of the episode, we in our closure, we, we give you our website and mm -hmm. Facebook, et cetera. But you can always search for us under In the Landscape on Facebook and see some of those photos right away or King Garden Inc. on Instagram. You know, uh, that travel is such a big part of your practice, but we're winding it down. <laughs> we won't be doing any travel. We won't be able to share much in the next few weeks, I would imagine, as we sort of hunker down here. But I will say, you know, we were out in our neighborhood last evening and, and thank goodness we're kind of emerging into warmer weather. So even if we're not able to go out and enjoy some of the bigger community events appropriately, which are not taking place right now, we can at least be outside. You know, we can get into our gardens. We can be at l walking through our neighborhood, you know, not getting too close to neighbors and chatting or anything, but at least saying hello across the street. And there were so many people out and about in the neighborhood. Right. And we're in a fairly low density area. So again, it was people sort of passing across the street or seeing folks in front of their homes. It wasn't crowded sidewalks by any stretch. 
but there is, I think, relief in the landscape, sort of emotional, psychological. It helps we in our in our wilds episode, you know, we talked about the psychological benefit of nature and kind of being present and mindful and realizing, you know, we're sort of like, as long as both feet are on the ground, maybe in some fresh green grass, like mm-hmm. we're okay for the moment and and taking that as it comes. Yeah, that's a time more than ever, whether it's like on a personal level, if there's stress in your life or uncertainty or on a larger community level or even larger than that. Yeah, that the maybe what's special about nature and the outdoors is that they they trigger the senses. And so our senses they operate in the present moment, that sense of smell, sight, touch, all the senses. So, and just being aware of your senses mm. brings you right into the moment, feeling yeah. the breeze on your skin. And so that reduces stress. It's, and then if one's personal stress is reduced, I can be useful to, to family, mm-hmm. to a, in a work setting, in the community. So yeah. like personal taking care of oneself is benefits everybody. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. I have some uh, vegetables to get in the ground here and stuff. So I look forward to, you know, providing a little bit of food, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, it's a big investment actually to grow your own vegetables if you're not sort of not up to speed, but right. there is a sense of u- ut- usefulness, as you said, and being able to grow your own food and stuff. So mm-hmm. um, I'll just pick up some soil when I'm out later. Yeah, actually, it's a good reminder. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So we wanted to focus today, this this topic just sort of came together as we shift many of our operations into remote gear. And this is a service that we have, we've offered and we've utilized a little bit, just if people need to get stuff in the ground and, and your schedule is such that you're not able to meet face-to-face in the moment. And that is this concept of online design. And many, many services have gone online. And so there's always a little bit of a, a benefit to kind of learning what to look for. What is What value are you really getting? What can online services not replicate? Like where, where, where will they be? I don't want to say deficient, but, you know, they're just maybe not as good as an in-person meeting with a landscape designer. But how can this maybe dreaming about your garden, thinking about your garden, doing it in a way that's economically sensible for right now is, mm-hmm. is not such a bad idea. So it's something we wanted to, to chat about. So let's start with that. First of all, how are the designs done if you, haven't, if you haven't stepped foot in the garden? And you'll hear us sort of along the way mention what the benefits are to the in-person visit. So we'll kind of weave that together. But essentially, what do you ask clients for if they need to send you information remotely? Well, let's see, it would be similar to in-person, but some of these components would become even more, import- more important if it's not in-person. So a site survey, where, which shows the pop property boundary, the roads, the walls, the buildings, all on a survey. If that's not available, there's usually, some, it's in a public form, it's usually like the public software is ArcGIS. So for many municipalities, you could enter your address. And so that would, you could pull up, it's generally not as detailed as a survey that's been done by a surveyor for your property, but it would be what's called like a mass space map where it would show your buildings and then the boundary of your property. And then there's topographic maps as part of this GIS software. So this is publicly available in metropolitan areas. So there might be remote parts of the of the world that didn't have it, but if you're in a major if you're in the vicinity of a major city, 
this is probably available. And so a utility might use this. They would, it, it might list where the gas lines were, where the transmission lines were. So there's many layers down to where the fire hydrants are. So that is publicly available to some extent. And that can be a resource when paper surveys not available. Now, it occurs to me that a lot of what we describe in our design, like where to begin design consultation episode, should apply here. And this is stuff that somebody working with you remotely isn't going to necessarily know. So if you can do your own sunshade survey, Mm -hmm. right, or I guess get additional measurements, perhaps, or do an inventory on your own, is that something you would suggest clients have ready to kind of hand over to the online designer? Yeah, let's see, like, if I was going to do one, I guess the instructions I would give for an online would be the survey, site photos. So take pictures of the site with, when I do that myself, let's say I'm standing on a porch and there's a pillar. I like having the pillar, an edge of it, so I know, okay, I'm on the porch. So elements in the photo that are recognizable. Well, and it also occurred to me as we were discussing the episode that one of the things you do when you're doing an on-site visit is you go inside the home. Oh, correct. So it may not occur to us to provide the views Mm -hmm. that we are interested in having designed in a specific way. So by all means, go in the house, take that, you know, view from your kitchen sink and include that in the package of information, because then the artist can be using that image to kind of design where, what your view is going to look like. Otherwise it's really this bird's eye kind of, we're kind of imagining the Mm -hmm. levels and, and what you might be seeing, but there's just Again, uh, the it's sort of an absence of information if we don't know what it looks like from inside the home. Right. So the views, that's a very good point, from the inside the home out, from a, whether it's uh, Google Maps, Google Earth, it's easy, it's, it's easy to find the, the location. If it's very forested, there's often not much, it's hard to tell. Mm-hmm. That's true of some properties. So the site photos, uh, let's see, other elements. If you're going to do measurements yourself, how would you accomplish that? Do you measure from a specific spot on the house outward toward a feature? Mm-hmm. Uh, do you do the measurement on the ground or can you hold up a piece of string? Like, what do you recommend? Well, I guess the tools I use, there's a measuring wheel and those come in, I mean, like a very commercial one where it's very accurate, but it's like a kind of a big cumbersome. I often use a smaller basic one, which is sufficient. So the measuring wheels, I wouldn't use those for masonry, let's say, where it needs to be, it wants to be accurate within like half an inch, let's say. The measuring wheels are not that accurate. So that's where if you have a tape, measuring tape, and you lay that down. So having a known point, so the, like the southeast corner of the house, how we would do it for an in- site inventory, we'd have the survey, we'd make a point, it would be like point A would be the southeast corner of the house. Then we'd measure to different points from that, like to the fence, to the driveway, and then you can more or less triangulate uh, the area. So what about designers who have, it's hard to necessarily know where everyone is located. Should you still be looking for, like we think, okay, online, so maybe I'm working with a designer out in California because that's where all the tech companies are. Is it important to look for somebody who maybe offers this service, but at least has familiarity with your zone and your plants or is mm-hmm. it possible for these remote companies do you think to have sort of a library of plants and i know we try to have 
hands-on in-person. We visited nurseries. We visited the botanic gardens for the areas that we designed. What are your thoughts? On the one hand, so the more design that's offered to the public, I think the better. So if it's online and the person is never going to visit, it's not great, but it's my sense is a skilled designer is can offer up a valuable service where the average homeowner is not going to have those design skills. It's limited if you don't know the region. Like when we've worked, collaborated with firms, other hemispheres and other countries. I mean, like one example was there's a Japanese tree lilac. That's a popular, it's a street tree. It's very beautiful. It only comes in white to my knowledge. So someone in another country, they would think lilac, it must be purple. So I remember that was like an error that was made when we communicated. They just assumed it was going to be purple. <laughs> so these nuances, but but there's a learning curve. And so you now for hardscaping, that is easier to design remotely. There's still things that could be missed. Like one factor, which is not may not be on the survey. I mean, ideally it is, is the utilities. So where the utilities come, if there's a pole or however it reaches the house, or if it's a buried utility, like a gas line, that might, so these are elements might not be on this survey that are very important. So in many communities in the, in the US, I know they have this and it may be around the world. There's a number where you can, it's called call before you dig, where it's like a service bureau more or less would notify all the different utilities and they would come out and mark areas if you're going to do significant digging. Well, so essentially, if, if you happen to be home for an extended period of time and you have the opportunity, you would just take it upon yourself as the client to get as much information as possible. And again, we mm -hmm. recommend that you think through what your program is going to be and you communicate that because it's not just about sort of plopping plants in the ground, but it's giving you pathways and seating areas and in a sense, you know, shade when it's needed versus not as well as perhaps a soil assessment. Right, a soil you know? test. You've talked through, you know, if you can't have someone come out to the house and do like a, a full-on test, you can still do the, the test where you pick up some soil and you hold it in your palm and, and squeeze to see, is it more clay? Is it more sand? You can be identifying areas of drainage or where water is maybe collecting. And, mm -hmm. and again, the... The online design then can make as much of that as possible. And again, the less information you have, the more maybe it's just going to be kind of a rough outline based on the spatial relationships of where plants might go. But more information will provide a more nuanced product, I would imagine. So the property owner, homeowner could supply many photos of the site, even different times of day. We might know, okay, it's on the northeast side of the house. That's probably pretty shady in the afternoon, but seeing a photo of like, wow, it's, there's a, a large building that's reflecting. So it's actually not that shady, or maybe there's an evergreen tree and it's really, really dark. So some of those nuances, the, I guess, online file sharing platforms are very helpful. So mm -hmm. like, a, I mean, like a, a proprietary would be Dropbox is one, there's a OneDrive. So there's a way to share files. And we do that when we collaborate. So it's, if there's a firm that's assisting us with renderings or with engineering, we can load all those files, the site survey, the site photos. And so clients could do that. And we should do that with clients. We'll say, here's 30 paving and, and color combinations. Because that idea board then becomes really important. So if you're not seeing it in person, although again, um, with something 
just from our color episode with something like fence color, seeing it out in the in the area it's going to be can be pretty helpful to mm-hmm. determine if it's the right hue. <laughs> but ultimately, idea boards are a great resource. And that's something, you know, obviously there's like online sharing networks like Pinterest that are really, really geared for this. But that's a wonderful way to kind of collaborate with your designer online so that you're not limited by distance. So things, so there are terms working remotely or in different communities, different countries, these universal languages become even more important. So the scientific name is the same around the world. Amalenchia canadensis is is like a native North American shrubby tree. It's called Juneberry, serviceberry, has shadblow. So the, the scientific name, that's universal. Color, it can be universal. So there's proprietary, like Benjamin Moore happens to be a paint company. So there's a fan deck where there's a number and it would it's a code, that's universal. Pantone is a universal uh, color code. So anywhere in the world, you can use that color. In some cases, we'll have the hard copy of documents can be uh, shipped or mailed between parties. So they're seeing that exact element can be important. So there's no nuance like, oh, I thought that Mexican red is going to be a little more orange. It's pinker than I thought. Well, and in terms of translation, you actually, that reminds me of also a good point because I was thinking, well, it, you know, if we're working with our partners overseas, all of a sudden we're dealing with the metric system as opposed to the <laughs> U.S. Right. imperial, I don't know what it's called, the feet and inches, you mm-hmm. know, centimeters and meters all of a sudden become crucial. But where that really plays an important role has to do with scale. So mm. when you get the design back, being able to read it and interpret it, understanding scale is really important. Right. Our office manager, who's taking on like a larger role as we our company continues to grow, we collaborate, we work all over North America. So I was training her on how to read when we get a, a finished rendering back, which has, it could be in color, black and white. It has a scale on it. It would say one inch equals 16 feet. And then there's, there's a key where that's represented. Mm-hmm. So then having, there's engineer scales, which is a lar- usually larger spaces. Like a city planning, it might be like 100 scale, where one inch equals 100 feet. Then for more detailed work, it's in architect scale, and that's in fraction. So it'd be like more or less a common one would be one inch equals eight feet. So when you get the drawing back from the designer, architect, engineer, interior designer, with a scale, which you could buy at an art supply store, they're pretty readily available. You can check, is this to scale? Now, when a document prints out, if it fits to the page, it might not be to scale anymore. Right. So sure. it's, it might be one inch equals 16 feet, but it's a little smaller than that. Mm-hmm. And you can just check it with, with, the, with the scale that you bought, put that on the drawing. Um, right. So it looks, the scale that you're describing is like almost triangular prism and correct. it has... Uh, several edges that have a ruler in, that converts that scale. Right. And so it's, oh, it's more or less always, I could be wrong, but it's, it's often one inch. So it'll... In this country. Right. In this country. <laughs> it's different overseas. <laughs> right. So, the, so reading the scale, and the, I'm sure that there's probably online it, how to read it. So our office manager, I explained, you have to more or less confirm that it's correct. Or like right. when a client will give us a property survey and it'll, it often will, there'll be measurements from the Southeast corner 
to the property line is 23 and a half feet. So would the proper ruler scale measure is that it might look like it's 40 feet. So then it would be there's conversion. So that's important like to make sure you're communicating clearly. <laughs> right. Yes, absolutely. Now, one other element to the design that homeowners clients may want to be aware of if they're planning to implement the design is that essentially the designer has thought through, and correct me if I'm wrong, the full growth size of the plant that mm. would go there. So the design will often show full-sized grown trees. And then, of course, you may go to the nursery and pick up a tree that's like, you know, in a five-gallon pot or something, which is nowhere near where it's going to go. But it gives you a sense of how things are going to fill in and can Mm -hmm. give you an idea of how to estimate the numbers that you need and then give you a really fairly accurate idea of how how you should plant them, like how they should be spaced so that they can fill in appropriately. That's very important. So like there's a Houston multifamily project we're working on. And so so the plan in the key, it would say this is like a variegated grass. And then it gives a quantity. It says there's going to be 250 of those in this one courtyard, for instance. And so that's an important back and forth. So let's say it's, it's a perennial. It's like in a one-gallon container or a quart. So it's a plant like that, depending on what it is, might be planted from the center of one plant to the center of the other, which it would say it's like, quote, on center. You're measuring. It might be 18 inches, two feet, depending what type of a plant it is. That's a conversation between the client and the designer. Did you want this to fill in? Did you want it to be filled in immediately where it's going to look full? It's going to be very packed though. Eventually it might be too full. Or the other extreme, if it was planted sort of, if it's too sparsely, it may never fill in. And then the weeds might overtake it. So it, it, there's a happy medium. And that's like, I really like a conversation, uh, which I often have said for, for X price, it'll fill in within two years. It might be two and a half times the cost to have it full right away. It might be 20% of the cost to have it fill in in five years. And then uh, what is the goal with, you know, for the client? You should be able to take your design and give it to a contractor to purchase the plants and install them if that's the route you're going to go. Again, keeping things remote or local, depending on the, the concept. And of course, you you can certainly implement many designs yourself. Again, it's going to give you a plant list and an idea of where to plant. And what about if you need substitutions? I mean, is that something a homeowner could do themselves? Like, oh, this is probably a good plant. Or would you suggest going back to the designer and say, you know, I reached out to the nursery. They just don't have what I need, or they have it in a size that's too expensive to kind of fulfill. Because we make substitutions all the time, right? but you just do it as part of your skill set. <laughs> so, Right. So if it's Handing a design off to a contractor or the client with no supervision or back and forth, it's a little risky. Now, it depends on how complicated it is. We do that where we hand it off to the contractor. The contractor, I would say it's fair to say, always has questions. The drawing, it can only communicate so much. And so, I mean, landscape architects, landscape designers will write specifications. So it's in addition to to the visual drawing, it's often a description of these plants ought to be planted in this manner. And there's details. So when constructing a wall, there would be a construction detail to backfill it with gravel for drainage. So for I mean, landscape architects, the construction drawings are very, very detailed where 
the work we do, we do some detailing. Since we super, we almost always supervise it, our drawings are not as detailed because I'm there confirming in the field. Mm-hmm. If you're not there confirming, you want to have a, like a legal document that has a lot of information. Right. And then there's still, depending on the contractor, they may interpret it, they may misinterpret it. Yeah. Well, and risk, of course, for the most part, just applies. Well, it doesn't just, but I guess the idea is you may need to accept a slightly higher rate of plants not making it if it's the wrong plant in the wrong place for whatever reason, or they mm-hmm. are packed too closely together. And, you know, it's that, that some of our guarantee when we do a design is that, you know, a certain number of plants almost always don't make it just the shock of transplanting is too much for them, but we are able, I would say for the most part to keep it to a pretty good minimum because so much attention is paid to the design mm-hmm. up front and then the installation and the ongoing is, care too. Yeah. Which is not to discourage people from doing it themselves because it, it can certainly be a fun project worthwhile and maybe even save money in the long run, but, but just acknowledge that not everything makes it. Right. I mean, the, some of the landscape research shows about 10% of plants don't make it for a planting job. Yes. And that has nothing to do, nothing to do with the design either. So for people who've never had professional landscape design installed, just be prepared. It's not all going to be, it's not right. all going to make it. Like there's a certain, uh, we sort of have to tolerate a certain acceptable loss before we sort of assume our landscape designer didn't know what they were doing. Like when you whatever. buy a bag of apples from the supermarket, you buy 25 apples. Like there, There's probably going to be some that are going to be bruised. Yeah. And so what's your tolerance? Can you live with that? Right. If, if you want them all to be perfect. Well, any other thoughts here while we kind of wrap up and sign off for, for today's episode? Well, let's see. I had a recent phone consult. So I had a, in, in person, it was some hardscaping and landscaping. So talking through imagery on the phone that was uh it was an intermediary step where before it went to the final design i really we by looking at imagery and talking it through and very rapidly sort like if design is a sorting process so a good designer will share options then the client will share feedback so you can do that on on the phone quite readily Uh, And that is a really good way to sort of maximize your time with your designer that we can't all afford to be in the field, you know, as much as we might want to be meeting with clients and talking things over and seeing it in person. You know, we get that several scheduled design meetings in person, but if you have the opportunity to spend a little more time on the phone, then then do take advantage of it. Right. Because it is just the more information, the better, like the easier it is to kind of then map out these solutions for whatever the landscape is demanding. And then sending a plant list, like the different projects were coming close to finalizing. We check with the nursery. Is this readily available? Yes or no. Then they want a final plant list. They can often, nurseries actually, which not so commonly known, they buy plants from each other. So if we have a very big planting job, competitors, they call each other. We say, we don't have seven Mexican oaks. Do you have that? So that actually happens all the time. The one nursery is going to fulfill the order for other large projects. Like a lot of plants come out of the Northwest and Oregon. And those nurseries in the Portland area will do that, where we'll be at one tractor trail or we'll be coming to the site, wherever that might be in Texas or in Chicago, and they'll more or less put an order together. 
Oh, and one big reminder to folks as they're thinking through their requirements for their landscape design and communicating this potentially remotely, what level of maintenance would you like to do? (laughs) So if you need a low maintenance garden, be sure to communicate that because some of these, as I'm thinking through some of the plants we might be considering for clients, if they do not want to be out there messing about in the landscape, then Mm -hmm. it's probably best to make different choices. Like who's going to maintain it? Yeah. I mean, the, the key questions I always ask are, to the client, the goals, the budget, and the timing of the work. And so that's important to think of, meditate on, what are, then who's going to maintain it? And then more or less like working backwards. Okay, so this is the budget. We want this within two years is the time frame. We can implement uh, now in spring and in fall, and then have a clear, clear communication with expectations. Things don't always go as planned. Sometimes things are more expensive or more difficult. And then trying it out. Right. All right. So we're just about to wrap up here. And anything else before we do? Well, let's see. We can close with with the design principle of the week. So one would a design principle to share would be balance. So balance is not it's not necessarily symmetry. It could be asymmetry. So but when things feel balanced, like in a car, the steering wheel, there's only one steering wheel usually. But it's designed, it feels comfortable. And so a landscape really can have that same feel when things are unbalanced, like there's maybe plants that are drawing all your attention and then the rest of the garden sort of bare, would probably feel unbalanced. So just being mindful of balance. When it feels right, it's probably balanced. Well, balance is a good theme for all of us to remember as we go through the weeks ahead. We hope our little episodes are just a small part of keeping you balanced and Mm -hmm. breathing and thinking through your, you know, the next steps ahead and staying present and (laughs) persevering, whatever is ahead for all of us. It's more important than ever to get out in the landscape, whether it's in your own yard, garden, public park. So that's it for us this week. We look forward to having another episode for you next week. And uh, we will... Wish you all well in the meantime. All the best. Thank you. Bye-bye. In the Landscape is brought to you by King Garden, a full-service landscape design, care, and education company. Enjoying what you hear on our podcast? We encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. We'd love to hear from you. So drop us a line at connect at kinggardeninc.com. We welcome show ideas, gardening and design questions, and always corrections. We travel all over North America giving garden talks and leading trainings. Check us out at kinggardeninc.com for our speaking details. And also take a look at our online course offerings for more in-depth explorations of topics covered on our show.